you'd like to turn to Genesis um, chapter 16. And that can be found on page 16 of your church Bibles. And we're reading verses 1 to 16. That's Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Thank you, Rachel. Please do keep your Bibles open on that page. Uh, It's always good to follow along with the preacher when he's preaching. Let us pray before we get stuck in. Father, thank you that you have given us your word in Scripture. Thank you that we can hear from you today. Lord, would you be with us, helping us to hear, encouraging us, and helping us to trust you as we look at this passage. Amen. Imagine you belong to the people of Judah as you and your people are being taken into exile in Babylon. You've heard 
God's promise of a good king to rule over you. God's promise of being a nation honoured in the sight of the other nations. And yet, as you and your family are taken captive, you cannot help but ask yourself the question, what about the promises God has made? Or, imagine you're a Christian in the second century church. You know that in Jesus, God has promised you eternal life, but eternal life seems so distant when around you. Fellow Christians are being hounded for their faith, imprisoned, and even killed. In fact, it need not be so long ago. Imagine you're a a Christian in North Korea, Afghanistan, or Somalia today, the three countries which top open doors list of the 50 most persecuting countries against Christians. Again, you could be forgiven for asking the question, what about the promises God has made? Finally, imagine you're a Christian in 21st century Cambridge. You've heard that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But the growing trend of non-belief or even multiple beliefs has put the church on the back foot. God has promised to place Jesus above all other names and to glorify his church as he does so. Yet as you watch increasing numbers walk away from the church and the good news of Jesus being mocked, you ask yourself the question, what about the promises God has made? In our passage today, we are right at the beginning of when God is making promises to his people. We're ten years after God has made this promise to Abraham in chapter 15. uh, And Abraham is asking the same question. What about the promises God made me 10 years ago? Back in chapter 15, Abraham is on a spiritual high. He's come out of Egypt blessed with servants and animals. He's a very wealthy man. And to crown it all, in chapter 15, verse 5, he's had this promise from God that his descendants will match the number of stars in the sky. And we're told, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. As the years pass and he and Sarai get older, they fail to have a child, let alone a vast number of descendants. What has happened to God's promise in their old age, past the point of having children, It just looks impossible. If you're here today and you're trusting in Jesus, it may be that you're facing a few impossibilities of your own. This Christian life, this following Jesus, just doesn't seem to be as easy or as fulfilling as we thought it would be. Why isn't God constantly intervening to bless us? Why is it I'm struggling to find work? Why is it I've had that bust up with my family? Why is it that God hasn't led me to the right romantic partner? Why is it that there seems to be a gulf between the promises God has made to his people in Jesus Christ and the day-to-day grind of work and study, paying the bills, dealing with family? If everything I've read about Jesus Christ is true, 
Why does life seem so mundane, even difficult? If that's you today, let me reassure you, because the Bible tells us that the God we serve knows what he's doing. And this God knows what he's doing, even when you and I fail to trust him when he's doing it. If you're here today and you don't yet trust Jesus, the whole idea of Christian faith just seems a little too foolish to you, a little bit too pie in the sky, then can I acknowledge that even the most devout Christians have had those doubts at some point? It is not uncommon even for Christians to question what God is up to. But if you're here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, can I challenge you with one thing? Why aren't you trusting in Jesus this evening? What's stopping you? Unfortunately, in this passage, Abraham serves as an example of how not to respond to doubt. He and Sarai get it wrong. Here's the thing. Even when Abraham finds it difficult to trust God, God is still trustworthy. God's character God's nature doesn't change even when we have our doubts. And it is this God, this God who sent Jesus, whom we can depend on. So as we dive into our passage today, we're going to look at three things. How doubting God leads us to trust our own wisdom. How our own wisdom is limited. And how God can be trusted even when we've got it wrong. Let's get stuck in. Uh, Read with me from uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. You see, if chapter 15 is the big climax for Abraham, the big climax of God's promise to him, then right away in chapter 16 we get this huge no. This cannot happen. Sarai can't have children. God's plan is impossible. How are they going to have descendants when they haven't even had a child? Ten years they have been waiting for God's plan to come true. And so, Sarai takes things into her own hands and suggests that Abram sleep with Hagar and have children that way. Now we have to be clear, for this culture, this is an acceptable way for a barren woman to have children. It's it's the same way that Jacob, Abram's grandson, would later have children through Rachel and Leah, his wives, but also their two servant girls. So, as far as Sarai is concerned, she's not suggesting anything which would compromise Abraham's moral integrity. In fact, she could be forgiven for thinking that this is exactly how God intended to bring his promise to fruition anyway. How does Abraham respond to her suggestion? Does he, as has been his way so far, seek the Lord's advice? Does he check in with God? No, he doesn't. 
From the end of verse 2, it says, Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Who was Abraham taking advice from in this situation? Whose voice is he listening to? See, as Christians, we have to be careful because so often what sounds reasonable, what sounds like good advice, is actually at odds with God's intention. Sometimes taking reasonable and sound advice can be our way of covering up the fact that we are failing to trust God. A young vicar was uh, dating a girl and he asked her father for permission to marry her. Now, like a good father, he uh, sat the young vicar down and had a few questions for him. How will you provide a home for my daughter? The young vicar replied, I trust that God will provide a home for us. What would you do for money? I trust that God will support us financially. How will you raise a family? I trust God will look after my family. As you might expect, the, uh, the father of this young bride-to-be was not very impressed. Later on, he's sat in the kitchen with his wife, and his wife asks what he's so grumpy about. It's this young vicar our daughter wants to marry. He has no idea how he's going to provide a house, how he's going to provide money, or how he's going to raise children. Surely, she says, there must be something good about him. He pauses for a moment and replies, yeah, okay, I think there's something he's got right. He keeps calling me God. I shared that joke with my uh, father-in-law, with my parents-in-law, neither of whom are Christians, uh, the same uh, week uh, that we told them that we'd be moving to Cambridge so that I could take up uh, a post here training for ministry. Just like the father in the joke, they were having a hard time accepting uh, that we'd be coming up here. A hard time accepting that we needed to trust God and his calling. It just seems too risky for them. We'd have to give up our home. Sasha would have to give up on a, an opportunity for promotion. On a good day, we'd be a five-hour drive away from any of our family. Do I have to come to Cambridge? Does Sasha have to come to Cambridge? Couldn't she stay in Plymouth and get the job? For our family, it was foolishness to trust God. And because they cared for us, they, they genuinely cared for us. They had all sorts of, of plans and ideas that they, we, could, we could have indulged in to mitigate the risk. You see, if we're not listening to, to God's word or God's advice... We're listening to our own advice. If we're not trusting him, we're trusting ourselves and our own wisdom. This is, this is different. I'm not talking about seeking good godly advice from mature Christians who can help us figure out what God might be saying to us. We should all be doing that every time we think God might be speaking. But there is a vast difference between asking people for help understanding God's will and asking them, 
what their will, their ideas, their advice might be. And at this point in the story, Abraham gets it wrong. He doesn't seek God's word, but instead listens to what might otherwise be reasonable advice. And Christians aren't immune to this. Everywhere we look, we're being given advice which, in society's eyes, looks, pers- uh, looks perfectly reasonable. We should be happy getting what we want out of life, in our careers, in our relationships, set a goal, go for it. Our culture teaches us to be self-reliant, pursuing what we desire. And if we're not careful, it can creep into the church too. So that we, we equate what, what we want and our own happiness with what God wants for us, with God's plan. Uh, and so that if, we, if we're not happy, if, if, we're, if we're not getting what we want, then, then somehow God is, is, is failing. It's that kind of thinking which results in some churches following something called the prosperity gospel. That if you have enough faith, God will bless you with health and wealth and peace here and now. It's dangerous. See, God promises that those who know Jesus will know perfection. They will know what it means to reign in glory beyond tears, beyond death. He also says that he will achieve that for them in his own time and in his own way. Abraham's uh, Abraham's problem wasn't that he needed more faith. It was that he needed to continue having the faith he already had. To trust God would achieve his promises. And we should trust God. Because our wisdom is limited. Abraham takes Sarai's advice and it doesn't turn out so well for them. Read with the end of verse 4. Uh, read the end of verse 4 with me. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, "You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me." May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. It sounds like something from the Jeremy Kyle show, doesn't it? I let you sleep with my maid and now she's having your baby kind of scrawled along the bottom of the screen. And you kind of have to ask Sarai the question, well, what did you think? What's going to happen? I mean, on the surface, Sarai's plan has worked perfectly. She's given her maidservant to Abraham, and they've conceived a child, which is what she wanted, wasn't it? But Sarai wasn't prepared for the emotional tension that would come from it. How was she supposed to know that Hagar would despise her? How could she know the feelings of jealousy that she'd have knowing that her husband had now taken on another wife. Some of you might hear the echoes of the Garden of Eden here. Adam and Eve eating the fruit, taking their own counsel rather than the counsel of God. Like Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarai have rejected God's plan and now they find themselves in this awkward love triangle. The passage makes it clear that 
All three characters are, are at fault here. Hagar despises her mistress. Sarai blames Abraham and ill-treats Hagar. Abraham is just passive and fails to protect Hagar, who is his wife. To my shame, I'm not the most practical person in the world. Don't ever ask me for DIY advice. I'm the kind of person who wonders why hammers don't come with manuals, that kind of thing. Uh, This is a photo of our front wall in Plymouth. Uh, This is the photo of what it looked like before I tried to render it. Uh, And the next photo is a photo of what it looked like after I spent a day rendering it. Uh, Apart from a little bit more grey, there's not much difference between the two photos. I spent a whole day, £40 worth of materials. My back ached, my knees ached, only for the cement to fall right back off again. I was dirty, I was grumpy, I was out of pocket, my wife is laughing at me now. I didn't know what I was doing, I had only made it worse. At this point, tired and annoyed and grumpy and kicking myself, I phoned Sasha's granddad, who's brilliant at this kind of thing, and the next day he came and helped me put it right. See, rather than confidently setting myself up to fail, what I should have done is asked Sasha's granddad in the first place, either to help me do it or to at least point, me out, point out how I should have done it. Because he knows exactly how to render a wall. It would have saved me a lot of trouble and a lot of expense. My own wisdom, my own experience, even my own pride was limited. His was exactly what I needed. When Abraham and Sarai agreed to this plan, they had no way of knowing what the consequences will be. But God did. So often what looks like reasonable advice is limited wisdom. We cannot foresee the problems we are creating by listening to the wrong advice. See, our our culture has done a great job of ignoring God's wisdom in favour of its own counsel. Where God's word teaches us to be content with little, our culture has pursued the maximisation of wealth, which has led to the credit crisis and payday loans. Where God's word teaches us to consider justice and peace, our culture has thrived on the exploitation of workers, whether they're in this country or elsewhere. And our culture is currently undermining God's word on marriage, on sexual ethics. And who knows what the effects of this will be. The self-reliance of our culture is catching up with us. The church needs men and women who will trust God, who will recognize that his plan is good and far better than ours. Men and women who are willing to persevere and listen to his voice even while he works out his purposes in our lives. And it may seem counterintuitive against all the reasonable advice that we've heard, but we can trust God. Abraham and Sarai aren't the only people who have to make the choice to trust God or not in this passage. You see, Hagar also has a decision to make. Yet look first how differently God deals with Hagar compared to how Abraham 
and Sarai deal with her. Read with me from verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Do do you notice the way he addresses her? Look closely at verse 7. Sorry, verse 8. Hagar. He's the only one to actually use her name. Both Abraham and Sarai refer to her as slave, verses 5 and 6. Here, the Lord calls her by her name. To him, she's a person, not an object to fulfill Abraham and Sarai's desires. A person whom God cares for. See, the mess of this situation is caused by Abraham and Sarai, and, and partly by Hagar herself too. And yet it is God who steps in to meet her and comfort her. And yet, isn't that amazing? What an awesome God we serve. You see, Sasha's granddad didn't have to help me put our wall right. He did it because he loves us and because he's the only one who could have put it right. Where Hagar had been previously ill-treated, God promises that she will be honoured, like Abraham and Sarai, with numerous descendants. According to verse 10, they will be too numerous to count. But she also faces a choice. Verse 9. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. You see, he's asking something of her which to us just seems crazy. He's asking her to return to a place of danger, a place of emotional, if not physical, mistreatment. I have to be careful here. This verse is not condoning domestic abuse, nor is it saying that God's people should accept domestic abuse, regardless of how much faith they have. This is an isolated moment of God directly and clearly speaking into Hagar's situation. And actually, some commentators think it would have been better for Hagar to return to the protective home of Abraham rather than fleeing to Egypt on the long, exhausting road. Even so, God is asking her, will you trust me? When Sasha and I were engaged, we were looking at at getting our first home together. And if we could, we wanted to buy. This is in Plymouth where the the house prices are much, much cheaper than they are here in Cambridge. Uh, We were given a a certain amount for a mortgage until it became uh, clear that the loan we had on our little Ford Fiesta was going to slash the mortgage price in half. The advice we got from our friends and our family was lie. Tell the bank that you've paid it off. We'll give you a loan for the money and you can pay us back. And it won't come up on the books. It will be secret. Then you'll get your mortgage and you can buy your flat. But we prayed. We felt God was saying, no, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to look after you. You don't need to dishonor me by lying to the bank. 
A few weeks later, we both got minimal, minimal pay rises. Not very much at all, but somehow in the paperwork, even with the loan on the car, not only could we get the mortgage, we could get a mortgage almost double what we'd been offered in the first place when we didn't have the loan on the car. It was just a, it was just a miraculous thing. I, I can't explain it. I'm, uh, I'm not an accountant. I don't know how these things work. But the fact that, that somehow we'd been honest and, and God had blessed that, that we'd trusted him, made all the difference. We had a choice. Would we trust God with, to provide us, uh, would we trust God to provide for us? Or would we follow the advice of those who did care for us, but would mean that we weren't trusting God? Thankfully, we trusted God. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that if you trust God that you get a house. That's not how it works. We may not have been able to buy our first home. Maybe we would have had to rent. But we trusted that God was the one to look after us, not the wrong advice of our friends and our family. We were sure God has a plan. Now, that doesn't mean that everything gets magically sorted out for Christians, but it does mean that we can carry on with faith to the next obstacle that we face. See, God's promise to Hagar parallels that of his promise to Abraham. Ishmael won't be the line of God's covenant. And the history of his descendants will not match that of his brother's line. But it is a blessing of sorts, and one which raises Hagar's status from slave girl to matriarch of a family line. No wonder then that Hagar can call God the one who sees me, in verse 13. He has met her in her misery, caused by human choices and actions, and has demonstrated his love and his concern for her. This is the God in whom we have faith, a God who would intervene in our mess and bring blessing out of it. And in trusting God, Hagar is also reconciled to Abraham. Look with me in verses 15 and 16. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne him. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Three times we are told in those two verses that Abraham was the father of Ishmael. It's it's the writer's way of saying that Abraham acknowledged his responsibility for his son. Through trusting God, things worked out for Hagar. So where does this leave us? As Christians, how do we know that God will keep his promises to us? even when that seems difficult to believe. For those of you who are here this morning, we were looking at the last part of Romans 8, where Paul writes that nothing, nothing, can separate us from the love of God found in Jesus Christ. See, the ultimate proof that God will achieve his promises to us is that he gave us everything. He gave us his son, to die for us because of the mess we'd created. As with Abraham and Sarai, he intervened when we were wrong. That's not the kind of thing you would do if you were just going to abandon people, the people that you sent your son to die for. No one invests time and money in in doing up a property only to let it fall into ruin. They have a plan for that property, whether it's to sell it or to rent it out or to live in it. 
They have a plan and a purpose for that which they are investing in. Through Jesus Christ, God is investing in us. He has a plan for us. Abraham had a glimpse of God's goodness and he trusted in him, at least initially. Likewise, if if we believe God's goodness and glory have been revealed in Jesus Christ, we can also trust that his promises are secure. If you've uh, not heard of the song, If I Have Fled to Jesus by Commission, the last verse goes like this. If Jesus' blood is precious, God's treasured only son, yet God allowed that blood to flow till all his wrath was done, if on the cross I see such love, how can I be unsure? What else could he be planning but to love forevermore? What else can he be planning but to love forevermore? This is the God who has not given up, even when we have given up on him. This is the God that can be depended on because he loves us and he's working out his plans. Will we be patient? Will we trust him? Let us pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you are faithful to us. You are gracious and merciful to us, even when we have doubts, even when we have questions. Father, thank you that you do have a plan for us. Thank you that that might not look like how we want it to look, but that it is a good plan, a plan to love us, a plan to give us a future, an eternity of life and love, reigning with your son, Jesus. Thank you that your promises are secure and that your plan cannot be opposed. Lord, forgive us where we have failed to trust you. Lord, help us to trust you more this week. Amen.